pray that you would indeed encourage our hearts to trust in you. Though we cannot see you by faith, may we believe and find comfort. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, some of you know, uh, if, particularly if you were at Sunday school, that my parents are in town. Uh, Gail and Coy, I love them very much. And as when you have your parents in town, maybe you do this, you start kind of thinking about uh, your childhood. And they are probably under the impression that all I do is talk to you about my childhood. I, I don't. This is a rare occasion. Uh, but I did remember, as I was thinking this week, about this uh, event. I think it was nine. They'll probably correct me later. I think it was about nine. I was going over to a friend's house. And this is one of those childhood experiences that stuck with me, right? Went over to this friend's house, and the friend's family was more permissive, let's say, than my family. And we watched Alien. Remember Alien? Like as a, ni- as a nine-year-old. And I was terrified. Like just for years, terrified of this movie. And like rationally, I know that aliens don't pop out of people's stomachs and all this kind of stuff. And I could kind of convince myself that this was all imaginary, but I'm nine. And when fear grips you, it's hard to let go, right? I mean, we've all experienced that. It it might be a a test that's coming up. It might be uh, fear that you're going to lose a loved one. It might be a job that's sort of hanging over your head and you're wondering if you're going to be able to keep it. You're wondering if things are going to go well. it might be a, uh, might be a rebellion, a betrayal from a friend, as David talks about in this passage. And, and once that fear gets its grip on you, it doesn't let go. It's hard to talk yourself out of it. You get your friends around, they try to reason with you, but it's gripped you. And no matter how rational or irrational that fear may be, it begins to seep in and, and it alters the way you behave it, it, in subtle ways. And it can happen over the course of your life and it be, can become something that you don't even see anymore. You don't realize that the reason your relationships are all broken is because you're afraid that somebody's going to hurt you. Fear has this way of seeping into us and gripping us and not letting us go, and we can't talk ourselves out of it. So what do we do with our fear? How do we handle the various anxieties and tremblings that we experience in our daily life? We need to ask two questions of our soul this morning. Two questions. We're going to question our soul and the fearfulness of our souls. First, by asking, what am I so afraid of? And second, how then can I get a grip on my fears? How can I conquer my fears? And what we'll, what we'll find as we explore those two questions, as we look at how, what we're afraid of, what am I so afraid of in life? What am I actually afraid of? And as we turn that fear and ask of it, how can I conquer those fears? what we'll find is that actually the problem is not that we're too fearful, it's that we're not fearful enough. It's that our fears are too limited, too narrow, and that we need a deeper, more profound, more earth-shattering fear with which to fear. First then, what am I so afraid of? Our psalm, Psalm 55, is pretty specific. It it gets into details about what David 
is afraid of. And you probably spotted this as we move through the psalm. There's, a, there's this um, antiphony that takes place where David twice in the course of the psalm talks about uh, the betrayal that he experiences from the hands of a friend. So he says, you know, if, if it was just some random enemy, I could handle it. But it's not an enemy who taunts me. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, verse 12. Uh, then I could hide from him, but it is a companion, my familiar friend. And later he describes this as a friend who has made covenant with David, a, a, a established, long-standing, tightly relational friend, somebody that David loves has betrayed him. And we can understand why the betrayal like that, particularly if you're a king, might cause great fear. And we can relate to David there. Our, our Savior could certainly relate to David. He was not only betrayed by his enemies, he was betrayed by his friends. Remember, and not just, not just Judas, remember, he knew that Judas was going to betray him, but he's betrayed by Peter. And as he approaches the Sanhedrin, all of the disciples abandon him. He is friendless, and that causes fear. Why? It causes fear because usually in those times when you are afraid, you rely on the people that are closest to you to either get your back, to pick you up, to encourage you, you rely on your friends. And when it's your friends who are betraying you, you realize that you are hopeless, that you're helpless, that you have no safety net. And so the wounds that are caused by our friends, the betrayal of a friend is particularly disheartening to the soul. And so while this psalm is particularly focused on that type of fear, on that occasion for fear, uh, and while that is a particularly pertinent occasion as we consider our own lives and particularly the, uh, the, our Savior's struggle against the temptation to fear, nevertheless, notice that this psalm opens with a more general description he is concerned not, not just with this occasion for fear, but with fear in general. He asks the question, as many of the psalmists do, why, what am I so afraid of? The soul moans in its terror. And oftentimes in this psalm, what we'll find is that this kind of fear, the betrayal by a friend, uh, besought, besieged by enemies, is compared to other things that we fear, right? So David is trying to explain his soul state, and what he'll use is metaphors to describe that. So uh, later on, he says that it is, it is the fear uh, of the raging wind and tempest, verse 8. He's, he wants to fly away from this raging wind and tempest, this horror that overwhelms him. And the uh, creation could sometimes be an occasion for fear. If you've been, you know, at night, you're, you know, you're stuck in your room and you hear the winds. Just a couple weeks ago, we had that big windstorm and the thunder and it quakes the whole house. You know, it shakes the foundations. And you just wonder at the power that's being displayed just outside your walls. Right? 
how much more in ancient Israel when their walls were so much more feeble, when the ocean is so much more close, so much more dangerous, so much more a subject of fear. The Psalms often compare the fears that we fear to being overwhelmed by a torrent, by a rushing wave, by an earthquake, by a mountain collapsing upon us. All those fears that we fear, we have names for them now, we call them phobias. But as we look at the Psalms, we see that just about anything in creation is an object or a possible object, a potential thing to fear. There's two other psalms that I considered preaching on this morning. Psalm 46, Psalm 91. Both of them, they're more cheerful psalms than this psalm, but both of them contain extensive catalogs of all the fears we find frightening. When we look at these things, when we look at this list, and we consider our own lives, and when we hear the cry of the psalmist, you really get this idea that, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of everything. Is there anything in this world that I'm not afraid of? Some of us have more particular fears than others. Some of us are afraid of uh, uh, spiders, and some of us are afraid of the dark. But all of those things make various lists in our Bible. And actually, Jesus gives us a clue as to why we're afraid of everything. If you'll flip over to actually the front of your bulletin, there's a passage here from Luke. Jesus is instructing the crowds, and particularly his disciples, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Striking words from Jesus, focusing on the first uh, verse there. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. What happens is, especially as we get older, is we realize that there is nothing out there. There is no safe place where we can be unharmed. There are no guarantees. Everything can harm us, from little mosquitoes bringing with it disease and pestilence, to mountains falling upon our heads. We cannot, you know, we wisely say it's dangerous to leave our own house. And of course, it's just as dangerous to stay in our house. The reason we fear is because we fear harm to our bodies. And we recognize that just about anything could cause our bodies pain. Just about anything can cause us to redirect our course of action. Just about anything could change the course of our plans and our lives as we hope them to be. There there is no safe place. Because we're weak, because we're frail, because we are out of control, we do not have control of the situation around us, because teeny, tiny, invisible life forms are capable of entering our bodies and bringing us to the point of death. And you can't fix that. There's no amount of times you can wash your hands that can guarantee you won't get sick. There's no amount of money that you can have 
that can guarantee you safety and security in this life. David wonders, right? He says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. A rhetorical question, because we know that there is no such place. We try to escape our fears. That's our instinct. Anything can cause us harm to the body. Anything could bring us down. And we try to escape that in a whole variety of ways. That's the cry of our souls. It's a foolish cry, but our souls tell us, fly away, get out of it, escape. Anything that is fearful, get away. So if we fear betrayal, if we fear that someone we thought loved us is going to betray us, we stop forming those kinds of relationships. We stop opening up to others. We stop trusting other people. Or maybe we fear the big test. Okay, you got a big test coming up? Well, often we don't even try. If you don't try, you don't fail. If you don't fail, there's nothing to fear. Or maybe in that moment... When, there, when the test is coming up, when the trial is coming up, when the performance evaluation is on the horizon, maybe we resort to some unrighteous act. We cheat. We fudge. We steal. We lie. When we fear the things that cause harm to the body, we're inevitably either try to escape it or try to fix it by human means. And we recognize that everything on this world is subject to death, to decay, to loss. And we conclude, as David did, where will I fly for rest? Where will you send your soul that it may be free from fear? How can we conquer our fears then? We're afraid of everything because everything can cause us harm. We're afraid of everything because everything in this world is subject to decay, is subject to loss, subject to pain. Where do we go with our fears? How are we going to conquer them? Well, if we continue reading in uh, this instruction that Jesus gives us, Jesus gives us a clue. He doesn't give us a full theology of fear, but he gives us a clue as to where to go with our fears. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, Jesus presents us with two alternative fears, and you can't have one and the other simultaneously. There are two options available to, to us. Jesus often does this. He often speaks in binaries, either this or this. And we have that in this passage. Either fear the harm that can be done to the body, or fear something else. In this case, the one who can do harm, the one who can judge, both body and soul. You see, what Jesus is saying is that your fear, it's not that you're too fearful, it's that your fear is too limited. You are too focused on the things that can cause harm to the body. 
You're only focused on the kinds of things that rust can destroy and decay can eat up. You're only faced, uh, you're only fearful of the things that cause us pain. And what Jesus does is he says, you need a bigger fear. You need something bigger to fear. Your fears are too shallow. Your fears are too petty. And so he presents an alternative person, in this case, to fear. Fear the one whom after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. That is, fear God. You know, the same point is there in the uh, New Testament reading. I don't know if you spotted this. Do you notice how the disciples move from one fear to the next? So they are fearful. This is Mark 4. There's a great windstorm and the waves were breaking into the boat. So they are reasonably afraid, okay? This is not an irrational fear. This is not uh, aliens coming and attacking us kind of fear. This is a fully rational fear. They're in a little boat in a big storm. And they're fearful of the winds and the waves that crash over them. And then Jesus does something. He says, peace, be still. And the winds and the waves obey him. And notice that the result of that is not freedom from fear. No. They were filled with a great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So they don't move from fear to fearlessness. They move from one kind of fear to another kind of fear. And that second fear, this fear of Christ, the fear of the one who upholds the world by the word of his power, that fear conquers their petty fears. Jesus' solution for us is not to enter this sort of stoic state. Oh, whatever happens, happens. It is what it is. There's nothing we can do to change things. Jesus' solution is that you fear something else. The problem is not the fear, it's the object of your fear. You are fearing petty things, mere harm to the body. And there's something else that needs to drive every action of your life. You need to fear for your souls. And you fear for your soul by fearing the one who made it. Our Heavenly Father, who knit us together, body and soul, and who will bring the whole world to judgment on the last day. This is actually another way. You know this already. This is another way of store up your treasures in heaven. You see, the reason why you are fearful is because your treasures are here on earth where moth can eat and rust decay. Your treasures are too shallow. They are too petty. And what Jesus wants us to begin doing is storing up our treasures in heaven, treasures that are imperishable, undefilable, kept in heaven for you, guarded by hosts of angels. That's the perspective that we should have. What can destroy those treasures? Only God. Only God can touch them. So fear God. And as we look at the Psalms, as we go back, return to the Psalm, as we look 
at Jesus' teaching about the fear of the Lord and ask questions, well, what does that mean? We find that it is a completely different order of fear. It's not only a different object that we fear, but it's a completely different kind of fear. It includes with it fear and trembling. It includes with it a genuine recognition that God's might and power is so incomprehensibly great that he could crush me at any time and for any reason and be right in doing so. It includes with it the fear of judgment, the fear of the power of God that comes and when uh, individuals enter into the presence of God, when John enters into the presence of God, when Moses enters into the presence of God, they quake, they fear a great fear. But the psalmist indicates to us, and Jesus indicates to us, that it is more than that. It goes beyond that. Notice verse 16 of our Psalm 55. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. We approach, we approach a God whom we fear and whom we trust, whom we fear and whom we cannot but go to. Has this ever happened to you as a child or perhaps uh, as a parent? You, uh, you were, let's say as a parent, your child sins, sins a great sin, uh, and you go through a biblical, perfectly biblical pattern of discipline, uh, which I'm sure we all do at all times, uh, you go through this biblical pattern of discipline, and there's tears, right, on the part of your child. They've been put in timeout or whatever has happened. There's tears, there's emotion. And, and, but at one point, the child realizes that the best place to go to for comfort is the one who just disciplined them. That's the kind of fear that we have of God. It is a holy fear. It is a, it is a full of awe kind of fear. And yet, he is precisely the one in, whom's, in whose lap we want to sit. This is the fear with which David fears. It's the kind of trust that David has. He honors God as God. He recognizes that God could answer his prayer or choose to leave David in turmoil. He recognizes that God is God, and yet he goes to him because who, to whom else will he go? Because God is the lover of his soul. Jesus is the lover of our souls, and though he has the authority to pronounce final and perfect judgment upon us, to whom else shall we go? We go to Christ, and what we find is that the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, is different than any other kind of fear because it contains within it not only that awe and trembling and wonder and the... the the fear of his might, the fear that we call fear, but it includes also trust, adoration, love, faith. So we are called to fear the Lord. And what happens is, as, we, as the object of our fear changes, as it shifts from these fragile uh, circumstances of our existence, to something that's transcendent and eternal and mighty and covers the whole heavens and the earth, what happens is these old petty fears begin to diminish. This is a better fear. It's a fear that pushes out fear. It's a fear that conquers fear. 
Three, three ways. Three ways that this fear with which we fear, the fear of God is a better fear. Three aspects of this fear that make it better, that, that cause it to push out other fears. First, in this psalm again, uh, this fear, when we fear God, we fear Him knowing that He hears us. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not your face. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me, answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of my enemy. It is a f- this kind of fear is not a distancing fear. It's not a fear that pushes us away. It's not a fear that causes us to detach from others, that causes us to fly, to escape, to move. It's the kind of fear that draws us in. When we fear God, we fear the one whom we know will listen to us who will hear what we have to say, who will appreciate it. Have you ever been in a situation and you, you have this fear, you have this anxiety, and no one will listen to you? No one will hear you. Oh, you're just being silly. That'll never happen. The fear of the Lord is the fear of one whom will, whom will, who will always listen to us, who will always receive us, who will allow us to moan and groan in his presence. And, second, he will act. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence in the strife in the city. Later on, save me, O Lord. And I called to the Lord, and the Lord will save me, evening and morning and noon. He, he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. The fear of the Lord is a comforting fear because we know that the Lord is empowered to act. Jesus Christ is empowered to act on your behalf. He has been given the scroll in Revelation. He controls the entire course of history and brings it to its climactic conclusion. It is Jesus who guards those treasures for you and guards you by faith that you might receive them when the fullness of the salvation is revealed. Jesus is empowered to act on our behalf. He is mighty, he is worthy, and he loves his children. The reason why the fear of Christ pushes out all other fears is because as we fear him, we realize that he has authority to give us all things. And there is no power, no principality on this earth that can take those things away from him and therefore from us. God hears, God acts, and finally God guides. We see this uh, in the psalm. The psalmist hopes in God and he, he, he puts his trust in the Lord because he knows that the Lord will guide him on to completion. The Lord will bring him through the fears with which he fears, the fears that he fears. Or think about Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know thou art with me. Right? This is the constant hope of the psalmist in the midst of fear that he will not only save, that God will not only save him from destruction, but guide him through it. This is why in Proverbs we're told that the beginning of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's because the opposite thing happens when we fear the Lord as when we fear these petty things. You fear that you're going to fail the test 
And if you fail the test, you're going to fail the class. And if you fail the class, you're not going to get into a good college. And if you don't get into a good college, then you're not going to get a good job. And if you don't get a good job, you're not going to be able to raise a family and, uh, ad infinitum until you, know, you die. You know, the way you get out, if that's your focus, if in this life only I am afraid, and that's my focus, the way you get out is you cheat or you lie or you escape. The way you get out is you sin. Fear drives us into every manner of evil, the fear of this world. What does the fear of the Lord do? It does the exact opposite of that. If we fear the Lord, then we say things like, the Lord has given me great things, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not stoic. That's joyful. Because our treasures are in heaven. And we know that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away on this earth, but he has laid up for us treasures in heaven which neither moth will destroy nor rust decay. The fear of the Lord gives us confidence and inspires us then to obedience, to faithfulness, to trust, to wisdom. Because he is our guide, not our circumstances. This is no miracle cure. It takes a full life lived to put these things into practice. This fear that we are intending to cultivate is a life, it requires a lifelong training. It is synonymous with faith. Looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter thereof, we look to Christ as the one who provides for us this kind of fear, who, who brings it into our hearts, who plants it into our minds and our souls. We trust in him and as we fear the things that are frightening in this world, we tell our souls, why? Why am I afraid? When the one in whose hands all heaven and all earth has been placed says, child of God, you are my beloved. Jesus is the lover of our souls. Let that cast out every fear that is frightening. Let's pray.